The following audio is from Two Pillars Church, a gospel-centered, missionally-focused church located in Lincoln, Nebraska. More information about Two Pillars Church can be found at www.twopillarschurch.com. What's their secret? What's their secret? I wonder if you ever find yourself asking this question. Maybe about someone you know. And maybe, maybe you admire something about them. You admire something about their life. Maybe it's a, a prominent person or a, a famous person. Maybe a, a, sto- a, a historical figure. What's their secret? How, how do they do that? You ever find yourself asking this question? Like, how do they get their kids to sit still and listen, not just through the entire sermon, which, by the way, is a little bit lengthy, but for the entire service? How, do they get, how does that person get so much done? It seems like even their side projects have side projects, right? The side hustle, like there, there's another side hustle to the side hustle. How, how do they do it all? How does, how does she read so many books every single year? How is that person such a prolific writer? How do they produce so much content? They're always posting another blog post. They're always publishing another book. How did, how did that person become such a, such a great leader? How did they develop such wisdom and godly character? Are there people in your life that you, you say like, hey, if, if I could just shadow you for a day or two and just like get a sense of of what you're doing, how you're pulling all this off. Like, I, I would love that opportunity. Maybe, maybe if you could just sit down and have a conversation with them. You might ask, and ask them this question. What, what's your secret? Maybe if you could just sneak a peek at a, a few pages from their diary or from their journal. Maybe they would disclose that to you there. Well, our... our Psalm today, we see the superscript, that first line of the psalm, that our psalm today was written by none other than David, King David. And the psalm gives us a picture of David's inner life. And we see that David's inner life is a calm one. It's a a quiet one. It's a, a still one. We see that David has a peaceful soul. And if you've done any reading about David's life, you might find yourself asking the question, what's his secret? How does he do that? Now this this was a man who became king of God's people. He got his own kingdom sometime around 30. The king he replaced then subsequently um, tried to hunt him down and kill him. See that King David's own son sought after his life, sought to, to kill him. It was King David, we see, fall into serious sin, committing adultery with Bathsheba, for example. He, he even arranged to have her husband killed. It was a man with the weight of an entire kingdom on his shoulders. And not only that, but the Lord had promised him that that his throne would be established not just for a little while, but for how long? Forever. 
forever, a, a, a never-ending kingdom. So you might say that he had the weight of the hopes and, and the desires of generations upon generations upon generations, past, present, and future on his shoulders also. And yet he says in verse 2 of our psalm that he has a calm and quiet soul. And so as, as I read this psalm, I find myself asking, what is, what is his secret? Like if I could just follow you around for a few days, King David, like just like peek in on your quiet time, like what is that, what is that looking like? What is... What does day-to-day life look like for you? How are you not buckling under the weight and the pressure and the anxiety that it brings with it? Well, Psalm 131, it gives us this kind of opportunity. It gives us an opportunity of sorts to ask that question of David. And, And I think if we listen closely, he's going to give us an answer. He's going to give us a sneak peek behind the curtain. He's going to share with us what his secret is. Now, the, the late David Powlison wrote, wrote about this psalm, Psalm 131, in his book, Seeing with New Eyes. And he, he said this, most of it, most of it is holy eavesdropping. You have intimate access to the inner life of someone who has learned composure and invites you to the same. Psalm 131 is a show and tell for how to become peaceful inside. Listen in. Listen in. And so then, that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to listen in. He who has ears, she who has ears, listen, listen to these words of David, these words that were written as he was carried along by the Holy Spirit. So let's, let's, let's dive in then. Verse 1. David begins by telling us some negative statements about his pursuit of peace. He he tells us uh, what it isn't like. He tells us what he hasn't done. The first half of verse 1, he's focusing in on his heart attitude, the, the, the inclination of his heart. He says, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. My heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. There's a a genuine sense of humility here uh, with David. Our our psalmist knows very well this, this statement of truth. God is God and I am not. God is God and I am not. Am not. And look, I, I know this sounds elementary. I know this sounds simple, but I think wrapped up in that statement is, is much of David's secret. As much of David's secret. Because you, you see, man struggles with this statement of truth are story. They, they, they go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. All the way back to the Garden of Eden when the serpent told Adam and Eve that if, if they ate of the fruit of the forbidden tree, do you remember what he promised them? He promised them. Keep in mind these words from Psalm 131.1, my heart is not lifted up, my eyes are not raised too high. This is what the serpent promised Adam and Eve. He promised them that their eyes would be opened. 
and that they would be like God, knowing good and evil. This is the exact opposite in Genesis 3 with Adam and Eve and the serpent. This is the exact opposite of what David is talking about here in Psalm 131. And so why do we struggle so much with this? If you're sitting here today and you're thinking to yourself, the words calm, quiet, and peaceful don't even begin to describe my soul. Unrestful, noisy, raging within me. Those are better words and phrases. Well, look, men and women like you and me have been struggling with this since, since Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden. You see, it was, it was on that day in the garden that the calm, peace-filled, peace-filled soul gave way to noise and anxiety and angst and toil. But David, he knows what the prophet Isaiah tells us when he says, Thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell on high, the Lord says. And I dwell in the high and holy place. And also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of of the contrite. The Lord is the one who is high and lifted up. David knows that that's not him. That's not his role to play. David is not the one who is high and lifted up. The Lord God himself, he is the one who is high and lifted up. And look, David's okay with that. He's at peace with that. It's one thing to know the truth. It's another thing to be at peace with the truth. It's another thing to be okay with the truth. You see, he acknowledges the greatness of God on the one hand, and that this place of greatness is not a place for him to attempt to occupy or to aspire to on the other hand. God is God and I am not. He doesn't desire this high place for himself in his heart, nor does he see it as a thing to to even be desired with his eyes. He's not even like playing like out these thought exercises. I mean, what if, right? He's living instead in humble submission to his God. He can say As he does in Psalm 16, the Lord is my chosen portion of my cup. You hold my lot. Lord, you are the one in control of my lot. You have my future in your hand. You hold my inheritance in your hand. And and the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Even as Saul or Absalom chased me down in the wilderness seeking to destroy me. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places because who am I? I'm not God. You are God. And then we move on to the second half of verse 1. Now, if, if the first half of verse 1 was about the psalmist's heart attitude, then we see in the second half, uh, David begins to, to describe actions, again, negatively. 
And the second half of verse 1 flows nicely and naturally out of that first half. You see, David's humble heart attitude and, and his secure sense of identity, this identity that's, that's rooted in, founded upon the rock of his God, they play out in the way that he lives his life. He says, I do not occupy my, myself with things too great, with things too marvelous for me. You, you see, David has a realistic and settled sense of self. And he lives his life out of that realistic and settled sense of self. For example, David knows that there are some things that he simply shouldn't concern himself with. There are some things he, he simply has no business thinking about and, and, and worrying about. For example, some things are better left to God. You see, God is sovereign and control of all things. And so David, he, he doesn't occupy himself with control. God determines what is good. And that which is not. And so David, he, he doesn't occupy himself with such things. God is everywhere present. And so David doesn't have to occupy himself with being all places at all times, being all things to all people. And I'm guessing his calendar reflected that. There are some things I should not occupy myself with. And, and to do so, to occupy myself with these things, is, is, is to occupy myself with things that are too great, that are, are too lofty. And so, David, he has a settled sense of self. He, he, he understands his limits, and he lives his life accordingly. The picture we get here of our psalmist is, is, is that of a person who is, is marked by humility. Again, he lives in humble submission to his God, probably with a, a sense of that fearful reverence we saw last week in, one, in, in, in Psalm 130, acknowledging his own sinfulness and neediness before God on the one hand, and the, and the holiness and righteousness of his God on the other. He, he has a settled sense of self that flows out of his relationship to and submission to his God. He understands his limits and doesn't live as though he has none. I mean, I wonder how many of us would find that the, the noise and the unrest in our souls is due to the fact that we live our lives as though we are not finite people. We live as though we are people who have no limits, limits in our time, limits in our energy, limits in our capacity. He's not a, a haughty person. He's not a prideful or arrogant person. You see, the, the proud and the arrogant person is never content because he or she doesn't have a settled sense of self that flows out of a, a relationship with their God. So, so instead, they have to manufacture an identity and a sense of self 
on their own. They're always looking around, comparing themselves with others. This leads to this constant sense of competition, one-upsmanship with those around them. And what does this constant competition result in as I'm, as I'm constantly sizing up those around me? Well, I, I begin to be judgmental and overly critical of those around me. I'm, yep, the, the prideful person is, is the person who is always in their mind, the wheels are always turning, they're always scheming, always performing, always on stage, always setting out to heap up the accomplishments, always chasing after the greatness and the latest achievement. Independent, autonomous, self-reliant, self-absorbed, glory-seeking. And look, this, this plays out differently in, in different people. So I think it's, it's helpful that, that uh, David speaks in, in, in general statements here. You see, some of us, some of us are really good at this game, right? And so, so all of this pride kind of puffs us puffs us up, and, and we walk around with this kind of arrogant sense of superiority, but, but prideful, arrogant, self-absorbed glory-seeking isn't always puffed up in obvious pride. You see, sometimes it results in a deflated sense of not superiority, but inferiority. But again, it's, it's the same toil. It's the same unrest that's, that's raging inside of us. The, the constant on this spectrum is the noise, isn't it? It's the noise where you're the, the person puffed up in pride or the, you're the one deflated in pride. The constant is the noise, the inner turmoil, the tumult, the anxiousness, the, the never-ending toil. And at the root of it all, I think David would have us know that at the root of it all is this sense of pride. And so he tells us, my, my heart is not lifted up, my, my eyes are not raised too high, I've I've not occupied myself with things too great. I've not given myself to pursuits that are too marvelous for me. And then David continues in verse 2. He, he gives us a picture, a metaphor of what this actually look, looks like. He, he pulls back the, cur the curtain of his own soul and allows us to peer in. He says, I have calmed and quieted my soul. Notice the active words there. Notice the active verbs. He doesn't say that my soul has been quieted. He doesn't say that my soul or he doesn't say that my soul has been calmed. He says that I have calmed and quieted my soul. And then here's a picture. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. 
Do you know what he's talking about here? Have you ever seen a baby, uh, like a, a, a newborn baby, an infant, who hasn't yet been weaned in his or her mother's arms? Have you ever seen this? Uh, a, a hungry baby in his or her mother's arms that hasn't been weaned? Uh, David Powlison gives a, a good description of it. He says, when a hungry child is placed on his mother's lap, he is agitated. Have you seen this agitation? It's almost comical. In fact, I think we, uh, especially with our, with our first, I think we, we recorded a lot of videos of this because it's, it's, it's kind of funny to watch play out. Um, but but it, the baby becomes agitated. He, he roots around, squirming anxiously. If he doesn't get immediate satisfaction, he frets and he fusses. Mother's milk means life, health, satisfaction, and joy. If mother doesn't deliver right now, he'll thrash about. His emotions range over the whole spectrum of noisy, negative emotion, the childish version of things that destroy adults, anxiety, depression, anger, jealousy, discontent, and confusion. What changes when the child has been weaned? Well, a, a, a child, even a hungry child, can sit in her mother's arms and be still. That's not to say that like hungry toddlers don't still cry and thrash about. They do, right? But a, a child can sit in her arms and be at peace. You see, a child that hasn't been weaned and is hungry, can't, can't even be at peace in the presence of, of his own mother. The presence of the mother is, is the thing that like, stirs the angst and causes the, the rooting around. The baby has something that it wants, and it wants it now. Contrast this with a, a child who's been weaned who can sit in her mother's presence and be at peace. This is the picture that he, that he paints for us. And if, if you've never gone through this process with the baby as, as, as a parent, then let me tell you this. This isn't a switch that gets flipped overnight. Um, at, at the stairhouse. Uh, Kaylee typically came up with what I can only assume was like a, a 10-step strategic plan. There's a, like, what we're going to do at night. There's what, what she's going to do in the middle of the day. It's not a switch that gets flipped overnight. You see, weaning a child is a gradual process. It takes time. And it's an intentional process. It doesn't just happen on its own. David says, I have calmed and quieted my soul. I have weaned my soul, as it were. And again, David is an active participant in the process. So then, how do we do this? How do we calm and quiet our noisy, anxious, and restless souls? I think the psalm, verses 1 and 2, we'll get to verse 3 here in a few moments, but I think the psalm, if we put it all together, gives us a really good picture of what this looks like. But I, 
I want to give you some diagnostic questions to ask yourself. Because, look, before we can solve a problem, we have to be honest, number one, about the fact that a problem actually exists. Before we can calm and quiet an anxious and restless and noisy soul, we have to, we have to do business with the fact that our, our soul is, in fact, noisy and anxious and restless. And we want to learn a little bit about this noise at the same time. And so let, let me give you four diagnostic questions. I encourage you to ask yourself these questions even after you go home today. Maybe in the car on the way home. Find, find someone to discuss these questions with. And let's, let's gain a little bit of insight into our souls and the noise of our souls. Num, number one is a simple question. Are you quiet inside? So let's just, let's just ask ourselves if, if we can identify with David at all as he writes the words of this psalm. Do you have a still and quiet soul or is it noisy? Is it filled with anxiety and busyness and toiling and restlessness? And let me suggest this. If you're not sure about the answer to the question, I think we should operate under the assumption that the answer is no. That you're not quiet inside. And, and perhaps you're not aware of it because you've developed some strategies to calm and, and to, to, to drown out the noise, right? You've, you've developed some self-preservation strategies, some, some coping mechanisms. I wonder what those might be. Maybe you deal with the noise, you cope with the noise by avoiding silence altogether. Your strategy is, I drown out the noise of my own soul with yet more noise. It's like I have a little bit of tinnitus in my ear. And, and so sometimes it's, it's hard for me to go to sleep because it's like someone's playing this high-pitched tone in my ear. And so you know what I do sometimes is I put in my headphones and I, I start some music or a podcast at a low volume so as not to exacerbate the problem. And what that noise does is it, it, it drowns out the noise of the ringing. Maybe it's alcohol or drugs that, that, that promise to just quiet the noise, if, if even for a while. Maybe it's through achievement, control, Maybe you seek comfort in things like food or, or, or shopping or sex and pornography, anything to give you that quick hit of dopamine. Maybe it's gossip and slander and a critical spirit toward others. Let me ask you this. How are these strategies working for you? Have they delivered on the promise to, to give you that long-lasting calm and peace and quiet in your soul? Well, let's dig a little bit deeper. Question two, are you climbing a ladder to nowhere? David Pallison again and seeing with new eyes, he says that the biggest problem is, is proud self-will. He says that proud self-will is the noise machine inside you. And, and he 
He says that we, we can begin by identifying, we can begin this process of quieting our souls by identifying what he calls ladders to nowhere. Elsewhere, he calls them stairs of sand. It promises to take you somewhere and then collapses under your feet. The, the, there are four ladders to nowhere, four steps of sand. The, the first is the ladder of achievement. In what ways do you chase after achievement? In what ways do you chase after wins and success and vainglory? How are you toiling after these things? Maybe it's uh, in pursuit of good grades. Maybe it's a promotion at work. Maybe it's a leadership position or recognition in the church. For some of us, I think our Instagram feed is our ladder to nowhere. Some of us, we've, we've gone so far as to, to, to gamify our own devotional time, our own quiet time. And it's become a ladder of achievement, a ladder that leads us nowhere. Because our, our devotional time has ceased to be a, a time of, of communing with Jesus, and it's become 148 days without missing a beat of, of reading my Bible. Second ladder. Ladders of acquisition. Do you find yourself, do you find yourself saying the phrase, if only, fill in the blank. If only this, then, then my soul would be quiet. Then I would have peace. Then I would be calm. Then things would be just fine. Where do you find yourself seeking after more and more and more and more? This might be the source of the noise. Where does more promise to solve your problems? Maybe it's, it's more money. Maybe it's more time. Maybe it's more toys, more recognition, more security, bigger house, nicer cars. Where are you pursuing more? This might be a ladder to nowhere, this ladder of acquisition. Thirdly, Pallison gives us ladders of appetite. Ladders of, of appetite. In what ways do you find yourself gratifying your desires for your appetite for ease or control or comfort? What hungers, what appetites have been building in you, have been growing in you, and and how do you find yourself setting out to to satisfy these things? What what about your your, your hunger for superiority, your hunger for power? What feeds your jealousy? In what ways do you find yourself seeking after immediate satisfaction? Are are there areas in your life where you you, you you just can't wait? Delayed gratification is not a thing. It's immediate gratification. That, that might be a ladder to nowhere. And this might, be, this might be one of the causes, at least, for the, the noise and the unrest in your soul. Fourthly, and finally, ladders of avoidance. How are you trying to escape? In, in what ways do you find yourself trying to, to get away? 
And what is it that, that you are trying to avoid or to escape? Maybe it's just the weight of responsibility. It's the weight of the responsibility that you have in your family, in the workplace, maybe it's in the church. You've begun to, to occupy yourself with things that are too lofty. Maybe you've taken upon your shoulders responsibility that you have no business shouldering, but in fact is the Lord's business to shoulder. You're trying to avoid or escape rejection. Maybe it's just the discomfort of suffering, the discomfort of pain, the discomfort of loss, people, relationships, on and on we could go. Are you climbing a ladder to nowhere? That's our our second question. Third question, third diagnostic question. Have you acknowledged life's limits and losses? Have you acknowledged life's limits and losses? You see, pride and arrogance refuses to acknowledge limits, and it refuses to acknowledge losses. Humility knows that I am not God. I am not sovereign. And yet, there's some ways in which I find myself pursuing sovereignty. So let me ask you this. Are, Are you clinging tightly to control in your life? It could be that you haven't acknowledged life's limits. You aren't God. You aren't God. You aren't omnipresent. But are you trying to be? I'm hitting on this one a lot today because I think this is a major issue for us. Does your calendar acknowledge that you can't possibly be all places at all times and that neither do you have the capacity and the energy to be at all places and all times? Let me ask you, do you have margin in your life? If a friend or a family member called up and they were in a time of need, do you have margin to, to be there and to be present? Not just to be in the room, but to be, to be present mentally, emotionally present. Do you have margin? Do you rest well? Do you Sabbath? Do you take a a full day to abstain from work? Or does that question actually stir up in in you anger at me because I, I asked the question in the first place? Of course, Adam, I don't have time to rest. Do you know what I'm shouldering? Do you know the burdens that I'm carrying? You aren't God. You're, you're, not, you're not omniscient. And I wonder if you're trying to be. Do you, do you have this insatiable appetite for more data, more information, in an effort to avoid failure, to eliminate risk? What limits have you failed to acknowledge? What limits have you failed to own. And and similarly, what failures might you have failed to acknowledge and to own? It, It could be that the angst and the noise and the anxiety and the toil 
is all the result of you running from past failures. Failures that the gospel of Jesus allow you to own. You don't have to run from them. They they don't define you. Fourthly, finally, what fuels your ambition? See, at, at this point, you might be asking yourself this question. Is all drive to succeed bad? Like, are all type A's, are all type A personalities just like hopelessly sinful and lost? Is all ambition sinful? Have I raised my eyes too high by setting out to get good grades? Am I occupying myself with things too great and too marvelous for me by applying for that that raise or that promotion? Is Is it possible to aspire to great things while still having a calm and quiet soul within me? Again, lastly, I think this is my last Pallison quote. Uh, shout out to, uh, to Marty Everding who reminded me that th- this chapter in Pallison's book is 100% on Psalm 131. Uh, there's a lot of gold to be mined there. He says that it does not portray unruffled detachment or stoic indifference. This is not what David is talking about here. David isn't talking about just a collective lowering of the standards. He's not talking about just like resigning yourself to a life of binging Netflix to the glory of God. (laughs) It's not about having an easygoing personality with low expectations. It's not retreat from the troubles of life or retirement to a life of ease. It's not the quieting of inner noise that a glass of wine or daily dose of Prozac produces. After all, listen to this, after all, Jesus and David were both kingdom builders, weren't they? who expected and achieved huge things in the midst of commotion and trouble. They experienced pressure, joy, heartache, outrage, affection, and courage. So Psalm 131's inner quiet comes in the midst of actions, relationships, and problems. So then, Psalm 131 doesn't condemn all ambition as sinful. I want to be really clear about that. It doesn't expose all desire to succeed or achieve as a result of prideful arrogance or haughtiness. But it does want us to ask the question, what is fueling my ambition? What is motivating my heart? Is it Pride and self-reliance and self-importance and self-preservation. Or is it a God-given desire to bring His name glory, to build His kingdom, to walk in obedience to His word, to steward the gifts that He has given you? In other words, whose glory am I seeking? In my ambition, is it my own glory that I'm seeking or is it God's glory? Another way of asking the question is, is whose story are you living? Have you been swept up into God's story? Are you happy and content to play a supporting role in God's story? Or are you living and writing your own story? A story in which, by the way, you are the protagonist hero and probably the victim. Finally, we, we also should ask ourselves a question, what is the fruit of our ambition? 
What is a fruit? If, if, if you're not sure, gosh, I, I don't know about the motivation that's, that's stirring me to this. Well, let's start, at, let, let, let's, let's start at the end and reverse engineer our way backwards. What is a fruit of your ambition? What is a fruit of your pursuit? You have a, a peaceful, calm, settled, quiet soul in you? Or are you like that anxious infant, agitated, squirming, rooting around? Are you full of noise? Now, of course, these four questions, none of these four questions, nor is the collection of the four questions a silver bullet for us today. They won't necessarily solve all of our problems. But what they do help us to do, what we're beginning now, is to just to put our finger on the problem. That's what we want to do. We want to, want to diagnose more accurately what the problem is. We, we, we've begun to pinpoint the noise, the source of the noise, the source of the unrest in our souls. And, and this brings us all the way back to David's secret. What's your secret, David? This brings us back to this question. We see his secret is that he's embodied humility. He's not lifting his heart or his eyes too high in pride. He has a, a settled sense of self that flows out of his relationship with and his submission to his God. He, he's not concerned himself with controlling things he can't control. He's not concerned himself with crafting an identity for himself. He's not concerned himself with vain glory. He's calmed and quieted his soul like a weaned child and now he can sit in the presence of his God and he can be still. And then we get to verse 3, which serves as an executive summary of it all. And, and, and really an, an exclamation point at the end of this psalm. As, as this intimate psalm, by the way, it, did you notice it, it read as a, a private, intimate message, a, a, a private, intimate cry from, from David to his Lord. He says, oh Lord, my, my heart is not lifted up. This is, this is an, an intimate dialogue. And now it gives way to this exhortation. It's no, long, no longer private or intimate. It becomes this public, uh, this, this, this public exhortation for God's people. He ends Psalm 131 in the, in the, with the same exhortation that we, we just saw in Psalm 130. He says, oh Israel, Hope in the Lord. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. And look, well, while David penned this psalm, we should also acknowledge that he didn't embody this and live it out perfectly. He did embody it and live it out at the time that he was writing this psalm, to be sure. But I, I think we can be confident about the fact that he, he didn't live this out perfectly. And like we've seen over and over and over in the Psalms of Ascent, this psalm, Psalm 131, finds a better, more perfect yes and amen in the person, life, and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
The Apostle Paul writes in a, a passage that's familiar to us, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. It's almost as if Jesus in the incarnation could have written out verse 1 of the psalm. He, he, he didn't lift his heart or his eyes too high. He didn't count Equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but rather he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Brothers and sisters, Jesus embodies this psalm perfectly. He emptied himself perfectly, setting aside the use of his divine power and privilege, becoming a servant he modeled perfect humility for us. He modeled perfect love, perfect submission to the Father. And he died on the cross in order that we could be forgiven, you and me, for our anxious pride, for our noisy self-reliance. And it's, it's the 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon who reminds us that, that Psalm 131 while it is one of the shortest psalms to read, it is also one of the longest to learn, right? And so again, just like the process of weaning a child, David says, I've calmed and quieted my soul within me. Brothers and sisters, this is a process. Here's what I'm asking. Here's what I'm asking. Would you give yourself to the process? Would you come before the Lord Would you, would you quiet yourself before the Lord Jesus? Would you come before him into his presence? Would, would you wean your soul, recognizing that Jesus himself is the perfect model of, is the perfect embodiment of this kind of humility and submission and also relying upon his grace and his mercy, and his forgiveness. For every time that our, our pride, self-reliance, sense of, of self-worth, our sense of arrogance gives birth to yet more noise. And so, brothers and sisters, let us go before our Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ, he promises us, he promises us rest for our souls. Let's pray. Father, we are, uh, we confess, at least if my brothers and sisters are, are like me, we're prone to, to noise. Noise in our soul, angst and anxiety in our souls. And, and, and we read a psalm like Psalm 131, and, and it causes us to ask the question, now, what is his secret? How does David pull this off? How could he possibly write these words? Lord, I, I pray that we would give ourselves to this psalm. I pray that we would commit, uh, that we might even commit this psalm to memory, that we would write it on our hearts, that we would meditate on it. And Lord, that, that you might teach us the way, 
that you might teach us the way of, of calming and quieting our souls, Lord, that you might dial down the noise in our souls, and Lord, that you might, you might give us peace in the presence of Jesus. Lord, we ask this in his mighty name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Two Pillars Church. Feel free to share this audio with others, but please do not alter or edit the content in any way. For more information about Two Pillars Church, please visit www.twopillarschurch.com.